Nima Well, it's a, it's a real joy for me to be with you um, in Northern Ireland. As been said, um, I, I was in Dudley for the last few days and uh, enjoyed quite some fellowship while I was out there, and, but was looking forward to uh, visiting this, this part of the world. The way in which I knew that I had transitioned was actually at the airport. Um, in Dudley, when I couldn't understand what people were saying, although they were speaking English. <laughs> so I knew, oh, sorry, just getting this thing sorted out here. Oh, I see what I've done. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but thankfully, uh, David's. Irish English has been easier <laughs> for me to handle. So, yeah, I'm, I'm already feeling very much at home. Good. Um, let's turn together back to that passage that was read a few minutes ago um, in uh, Colossians 1. And uh, as, as we begin, um, you will notice the theme of... Uh, uh, our meeting is is really Christ above all, and uh, as I expound the the entire epistle of Paul to the Colossians, uh, it's important for us not to consider ourselves as uh, simply making a journey through a book, a letter. Uh, I think it's vital for us to to bear in mind that theme especially because it really has a bearing on the preaching ministry as a whole, that it's, it's, it ought to be our message to the world, that Christ is above all, and that our eternal destiny, our eternal joy, hangs on whether that is a living reality in our own hearts. And so even uh, this evening, as uh, we'll be having a slightly different meeting, that I intend to make the, the, the heart of what I want to speak about, a, a Christ-centered ministry. With respect to the, the Apostle Paul, um, he, he was in prison as he was writing this letter, including uh, the letter to the Philippians, the, the letter to the Ephesians, and so forth, as to exactly which prison he was in always remains um, a point of debate and discussion. But there's no doubt that as news got to him concerning the church in, uh, in Colossia, he, he was burdened primarily about the fact that they were being moved away from the centrality of Christ. And so right in the middle of uh, this epistle, chapter 2 particularly, you can't miss the fact that finally uh, Paul locks horns with this issue. 
that the, the, the believers in this city may, rather this province, may not end up moving away from Christ above all. Now, back home in Zambia and Africa as a whole, this is something that uh, I personally and other pastors are constantly wrestling with. Because whereas our faith is referred to as the Christian faith, there is even Christ in that name, you tend to find that it's become like the, the final painting or a sprinkling on something which is altogether other than Christ. It's often uh, just our traditional religions, African traditional religions that are at the heart of everything with a thin facade of Christianity. It could be the same even here in Northern Ireland that you may still be claiming to be Christian, even having very good confessions of faith that are centered around Christ. But in your individual ministry, it's fairly easy to move away from Christ above all. That when you are now, for instance, dealing with counseling situations, individuals coming to you with all kinds of complex issues, it's fairly easy for you at that point to see Christ as not being relevant and therefore beginning to give solutions and answers and counsel that are everything but Christ. And here's the relevance of us journeying through this letter. I want us, as we are making our journey through, to keep asking ourselves, is this true of me? Is this my ethos? Is this my conviction? Were I in the shoes of the Apostle Paul, would I be speaking as he is speaking here? And I trust that that way, in the four sessions that we have this morning, we will all be greatly helped. The first topic that I'm dealing with here is entitled The Triumphs of the Gospel of Christ. And it is right across the passage that we have just um, listened to. Now, uh, it's quite a number of verses, and therefore, uh, I won't have the time to deal with everything in detail. We will be, as it were, galloping along, and I hope you will sort of hold your heart there, lest it flies off. But uh, I'm still hopeful that we will see that uh, what Paul is dealing with in this passage that we have just read is first of all the fact that the gospel has triumphed. Here is evidence in the church in uh, Colossia. Uh, but secondly, it has triumphed because of who Christ is, which we will see again right in the middle of this section. And that therefore Paul, 
And in that sense, those of us who are called to this ministry can identify with him there, have been given a stewardship to ensure that this gospel continues to produce fruit and we need to remain faithful. And basically, that takes us through this first chapter. I won't read the whole of it. It's already been read, but it's just worth at least beginning with those first two verses of salutation uh, being read once again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, no doubt Timothy would have been with him, most likely the one who would have been penning this actual letter on behalf of Paul, as Paul would have been dictating. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colos, and these, these are churches that Paul himself would not have met individually. He would have met some of them as he was going around preaching and there was a lot of movement of individuals from one place to the other. But as we will go on to see here, there was somebody else who was the primary evangelist through whom uh, these uh, brethren came together by the name of Epaphras and uh, sends them greetings as usual, like all other epistles, through grace and peace from God our Father, and often he adds, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the first thing, as I've already said, in terms of uh, Christ above all, is that this is realized through the proclamation of the gospel. And we see this having been achieved in this particular text. I'm deliberately referring to this point as the software. Now, the reason why I'm using the word software is because later on, when we come to chapter 4, we will be seeing there how the gospel, the work of the gospel spreads through various individuals working together in partnership. And I'll be referring to that as the hardware. So just keep that in mind as we are in this section. Here, we are dealing with that which makes the difference inside the equipment. It's not churches in terms of buildings, it is not merely individuals that are coming together. It is a message. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's that which triumphed in Colossia. It is that which I trust has triumphed across Africa. It is that which has triumphed also here in Northern Ireland. Paul rejoices about this in thanking the Lord, and then proceeds to pray that the brethren in Colossia would, in fact, know more and more of this gospel in their lives. Again, the passage that we already read, verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus 
and of the love that we have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And here it is, this triumph of the gospel. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. And this is something, brethren, that we ought to be rejoicing in as we are seeing perhaps not as much as may have been true in times past when there would be seasons of revival and hundreds and thousands of individuals were coming to repentance and faith in Christ and some of them in such an extraordinary and emotional level. But nonetheless, we ought to rejoice when we see one soul coming to repentance and faith in Christ. It is not our own doing. It is the work of the Holy Spirit taking this message and giving life to the dead. It is this message, as we hear here, bearing fruit and increasing. Like the Apostle Paul, we really ought to be giving thanks from our hearts when we see this taking place. I repeat, it may not be in hundreds and thousands, but we must never take for granted a soul coming to repentance and faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul speaks here in verse 6 about individuals who are coming that way, understanding the grace of God in truth. Because ultimately, that's what the gospel is. It's hell-deserving sinners. Instead of receiving what they deserve from a thrice-holy God, a God who must punish sinners, instead receiving a free and full pardon from this same God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is that which ought to move us to be part of this great army, sharing the good news of a God of grace. One of the most uh, well-known hymns in history is exactly that, Amazing Grace. And then there's a pause. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Friends, as we remain proclaimers of the gospel, may we never get over the wonder of that grace. May we every so often still pause and say, wow, what a gloriously gracious God there is. And may that motivate us to be a people that therefore want the world to hear. 
the Apostle Paul not only gives thanks to God, but he also prays for the believers to see more and more of this and consequently to be able to bear its fruit. And so he says there in verse 9, really repeating what he says in verse 3 in terms of having heard of your faith, but here he now says, and so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you. And may I suggest to you that what he is praying for is for sanctification to happen in the lives of these believers. And I will show you that in a moment. But before we open that up, just to say it again, that those, those of you who are either hoping to become pastors or are ready in pastoral ministry will realize that when people come to faith in Christ, yes, there is a, a, a real dramatic inner spiritual change that has taken place. They've been translated from the kingdom of darkness, as Paul says here, uh, to the kingdom of uh, light, the kingdom of God's beloved son. It's, it's, it's real. It's, they've gone from blindness to, to being able to see spiritually. They've gone from death to life and, and so on. We can multiply that. That is the beginning of a lifelong journey in terms of qualitative growth. Yes, the power of sin in terms of its um, um, chains on their lives, that power has been broken, but its presence is still there. The root of sin is still there. And therefore, the need for them to grow in Christ-likeness. Now, here's the point. That's something that happens not only through the word, but also in terms of their growing appreciation of who they are in Christ. And that's all really that the Apostle Paul is speaking about here when he says that he is praying, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. And then he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. As a result of that, he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and again, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's that process that we need to be constantly praying for. Um, it was mentioned to you earlier that there's a book that's uh, in, in the bookstore that I've written entitled um, Pastoral Preaching. When I was asked to write that, that, the major burden that caused me to say, yes, I will do that, was primarily that in our context back home, we speak in terms of Christianity being a mile wide and only an inch deep. 
we, we have so many people who are coming to faith in Christ for which we rejoice. But then when it comes to the quality of life and living in the home, in the workplace, in the society, there is so much that you realize we need to still work on. And often it is primarily a failure in the pulpit to show God's people that there are heights to be reached in godliness as God's work, rather God's word is working in our lives. And those heights can only be reached as God's people are having their eyes opened to the height and depth and length and breadth of what God has done for us in Christ. It's a responsibility that we have to preach, but here it is also a responsibility we have to pray, to pray, to pray that the Spirit of God would take these same truths and burn them into the hearts and lives of believers. And that's essentially what Paul is talking about here. And that way they will be strengthened to be able to live this kind of life. In the book of Acts, uh, the apostles spoke as the church grew and was bursting at the seams and they were failing to take care of, of widows' needs in terms of physical needs. The, the, the apostles finally stepped back for a moment and said, you know what, we, we can't go on like this. This is going to kill us. Let's appoint others to handle the daily distribution of food. And then they said, so that we can give ourselves to basically prayer and preaching. Prayer and preaching. Prayer and preaching. This is part of the software. Not just the proclamation of the gospel, but it being fueled as we learn to labor in utter dependence upon the Lord, asking for more and more of his presence with us. Later on in chapter 4, as we come to the hardware, the Apostle Paul will again be pleading for prayer. He'll be asking that he might be prayed for. As we pause at this juncture, it's just worth asking ourselves whether we emphasize that in our individual lives, whether we emphasize that communally within the leadership of the church as elders of churches, and whether we emphasize that in and among the people of God that with all our Bible colleges and all the training we have in rightly handling the word of God, we need him. We need to be filled with the spirit in order to carry out this kind of life.
Well, that's the first thing that the Apostle Paul deals with there. He is rejoicing at the triumph of the gospel, showing how Christ has come into the lives of the Colossians as Christ above all. And it says, he, he mentions the kingdom of God's beloved son that he now, as it were, bursts in this eloquent uh, display of the preeminence of Christ. What he puts together here, packs together from verse 15 down, especially to verse 20, is such um, an eloquent display of who Jesus Christ is. It's hard to find it anywhere else in scripture. In the book of Romans, there are quite a number of times when the Apostle Paul does wax eloquent. I mean, he he hits levels of eloquence every so often that, that uh, sort of leave you breathless as you are uh, reading them. But there's no doubt that these few verses rise to similar levels. And I think here I won't skip verses. I just want to quickly read it out to you. But the movement that is there is again unmistakable. First of all, it's who Christ is in himself, who he is with respect to the whole of creation, and who he is with respect to the church. So he's not just saying the first thing that comes to his mind. He's making movement. And even when he says who he is with respect to the church, he then comes to Colossia itself and says, this is who he is to you. Let's quickly uh, go through that. Who he is in himself. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, he then goes, over all creation or of all creation. So who he is with respect to the whole of creation. And he is the creator of all things. And creation is there for him. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible with the thrones or dominions. I mean, all he's trying to say there as he's multiplying these words is that there is not a single part of the whole of creation that did not come into existence through even those mighty beings that surround God's throne are a product of Jesus Christ. All things were created through him, and then he adds, and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the image of the invisible God. Not in the sense in which you can see just a picture, but in the sense that he has God coming among us. We want to know this God. 
Well, all we need to know is Jesus Christ and we know this God. So it's not just a picture being shown. It is indeed God coming down in human flesh. And then his relationship with the church. With respect to creation, he is the firstborn of all creation or the firstborn over all creation. And then here it is, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Now, I'm sure you know this, but let me say it nonetheless. When he's using the phrase firstborn, firstborn, he's not thinking in merely natural terms, you know, that he's the first one that was born. It's more in terms of the status, the position, the role that he, he plays. It's something that perhaps is not as obvious within uh, the, the Western form of life and living as it is for us back home. Uh, back home, uh, firstborn is normally the firstborn. But every so often when the firstborn is a fool, totally irresponsible, that that position is given to his younger brother. It's an embarrassing situation, yes, but everybody knows that that parent has his head screwed on properly by not allowing the firstborn to be the firstborn. Okay, so you understand what I mean. And, and that's what Paul is capturing here. It's not simply he was the first, but it is that role of honor, that role or position of authority, that position where this person will in due season be the one dispensing of a heritage. And that's what he's capturing here about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the next phrase is that in everything he might be preeminent. That's what he's capturing there. Uh, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Again, just enabling us to capture the fact that this Jesus Christ was not a mere man. It is God in human flesh. That's who he is. And then through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Those of you taking notes, um, capture... Ephesians 1, um, verse 3 downwards, it's basically um, what he is saying in these words and how through Christ the, there is a, a, a cosmic agenda of a fallen world being reconciled to God and that ultimately there will be a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, but all this achieved at the cross. What he says there in verse 20 is basically bringing us back to what he had said in verse 
13, when he said he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, the dominion where the king rules. And that king is God's beloved son. It is Jesus Christ himself, bringing all things under him, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And out of that, he goes back then now to the Colossians themselves. So he's talked about Jesus Christ, who he is, his relationship to the whole of creation. We must never lose sight of that. It is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who rules the universe. And then he's also the head of the church. The church of which he is, as it were, the firstborn from the dead. And now he comes to the Colossians themselves and says that this is exactly the way it was with you. At one time you were in rebellion. Look at what he has done. You were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So you are but a microcosm of the triumph of this gospel of Christ. He's done it. That's who you are. He's doing it through your ongoing sanctification. He will finally do it in your glorification. And not just on the day you die and you enter into heaven, but ultimately when he returns. And you are now in new bodies, shining like the brightness of the noonday sun, shining like his own body. You are complete without sin and loving him with all your being. That's where history is going. And I love the way he puts it there in verse 23. He says, as long as you don't shift from the hope of the gospel that you had, and here it is, which has been proclaimed in all creation. At that point, when Paul was writing, we would sort of say, well, come on, Paul. But, but we can't say that now. This gospel has been galloping along, galloping along at great cost to its preachers, but galloping along and bringing men and women from various tribes and languages and nations to bow their knees to King Jesus, that he might be above all. Well, this is what transitions us now back to Paul. Back to Paul. We already saw him in verse 1 referring to himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus 
by the will of God. He's now opening that up for us, or for the church in Colossae, but through them to us as well. And basically the point there is that Paul's ministry was a vehicle through which Christ's triumph was to be realized. It was but a mere vehicle, again, of this gospel through which Christ triumphs, Christ is above all. I love the way he opens this up because he's in prison. And listen to him. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He's in prison. And he's basically saying, don't feel sorry for me. I'm rejoicing that I am part of this glorious triumph of the gospel. That my suffering is simply according to plan. It's it's part of the DNA of gospel ministry. I'm, I'm, I'm simply, as it were, finishing off something of what Christ has done. I'm part of the mopping up operation. He says, in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body that is the church. Not that there was something missing in the cross, zero. When Jesus said it was finished, it was finished. He paid the full price for our sin. And what it means by this is that the gospel is now going into enemy territory. And nobody goes into enemy territory and comes out without scars. Nobody. You go in and it's a bloody fight. Jesus laid that foundation. His soldiers go in. And consequently, completing that entire process of bringing in God's elect people. That's basically all that he is saying in in those words that sound perhaps a little uh, complicated. But all he's saying there is again, I am going in to do what? To preach Christ. That's what I'm doing. To preach Christ. Hidden in ages past in terms of the full revelation revealed now, made known among the Gentiles. And what has been made known? The riches of the glory of this mystery. And what is it? Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he says, I'm preaching him. I'm proclaiming him. I'm making him known everywhere he is saying, with all the energy that powerfully works within me. All that all of us who are preachers would describe ourselves that way. 
We are not, brethren, on a paid holiday. We are not. We're supposed to be soldiers of the cross, spreading the aroma of Christ, putting in all the energies that our ransomed beings can produce. And I'll quickly wrap up the last bit here in chapter 2, verse 1 to 6, because all he's saying is, although I am not with you physically, although I may have never met many of you, even as far away as I am in this prison, I am still doing exactly the same for you. Obviously, part of it is through the letters he was writing, and part of it was the praying that he was doing for them. And so he says in verse 1, For I want you to know, chapter 2, verse 1, how great a struggle I have for you, and for those in Laodice, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts might be encouraged, and so on. But I just want us to take note of that last phrase in verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of the knowledge of God's mystery. What is that? Christ. 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 That's our responsibility, brethren. That's what our role is. It is this of... uh, ensuring that the message of the gospel is, as it were, held up in this huge billboard for our generation and generations to come to see in unmistakable ways that Christ is above all If they remain in rebellion, they must pay for it dearly for all time and eternity. And therefore, they should come and bow the knee to him. That at the cross, he has paid the price to reconcile all of us to this great God of heaven who's holy, thrice holy, who must punish sin. And that the offer of reconciliation is made even in our own day through us living instruments, stewards, to borrow the words of the Apostle uh, Paul here, stewards of this (laughs) gospel from God. Is that our attitude? Is that our view? That Christ who is above all can thus be owned through the privilege we have to be proclaimers of his word. Let's have a quick word of prayer. Great God of heaven, Sometimes it's easier to hear these things than to do them. But thank you, Lord, that 
even in hearing them, we are put before a mirror that we might once again look at the ethos of our own ministries. Oh, God of heaven, help us to realign ourselves and our ministries to such a glorious example. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Nima.